Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, glad to be here, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I saw, uh, we were singing away and having a glance this way, and I saw someone over here yawn. I'm kind of like, don't do that, because, like, <laughs> don't do that. Um, yeah, I got in at 5.30 this morning and ran around and got my shuttles and grabbed my car and ran back here. Fortunately, we have showers downstairs, so you don't stink too bad, and try to tee it up and get through some of the text this morning, which I'm actually very excited about. I think there's some really interesting things to learn in terms of Jesus' interaction and what it looks like, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. I'm going to invite you just to bow with me and uh, present ourselves before the Lord before we step into his word. You know, Father, we count one of the greatest privileges on earth that we have direct access into your throne room of grace. Father, I pray that you would convict us to the deepest part of our core and our being of, the, of one of the greatest privileges that we could have in all the universe, and that is to talk face-to-face with you. Uh, Father, we um, struggle with not being able to physically see you, and often we treat prayer like a ritual rather than this great conversation with the God of the universe. And Father, we come before you this morning and we want to, as Paul admonished the Romans, to present ourselves as living and holy sacrifices. It is not an extraordinary or radical act on our part of faith. It is simply our reasonable and respectful worship. Father, we ask that as we come before you that you would continue to invade our hearts and minds and thoughts and you would continue to reshape our lives and our beliefs and values so that they align with the kind of perspective that you want us to have. And yet, Father, we live in a world where we are so easily distracted. And it's so easy for us to think that there are certain things in life that you don't care about, and so because of that, we often dismiss you to go do other things while we handle certain aspects of life. And yet, it's the smallest things in the world that sometimes can trip us up, and we ask that as we continue to step into your word and we understand the element of how Jesus interacts with ordinary individuals that we would allow him to interact with our hearts. And so we entrust ourselves to you and, and allow the, ask the spirit of the living God to continue to instruct our hearts, not, again, to give us more information that we might entertain, but that you would reshape our hearts so that we'd learn to live by faith. We are humble before your presence, we count it a privilege, and we ask that you teach us this morning, and we give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18, says this, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. But no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, I suspect that most of us, as we read through here, just kind of like skip through it, because most of us don't care about fasting, and most of us uh, may not care about these sort of bizarre images that Jesus portrays in this discussion about fasting, which, uh, unless you're... 
trying to cleanse your body, uh, we, most of us probably don't care about it. And so it seems like a bit of an anomaly, but what Jesus is dealing with at the core of this is he's dealing with worldviews. And he's coming in going to present himself as the fulfillment of ancient promises that God had made back even to Abraham, and he is going to radically rub against the worldview that these individuals have. And, and as much as it may, as in its simplest form, say that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all the promises made in the Old Testament, and he's going to inaugurate those promises in such a way that's going to transform uh, Israel's relationship with God, and he's going to extend those promises and those blessings to the Gentiles so that we all become part of his family, so there's this radical new covenant relationship that God's going to establish, there are some things that are part of this that I have seen in the rub of churches uh, that we want to talk a little bit about in terms of the, a very similar principle that happens here, often happens in churches. And so as we think on this, he, he's dealing with worldview. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, a worldview, it's, if you just flip it around, it's, say it's usually the way a person views the world and interprets it. So if, for example, I talk about evolution, it, we tend to think of that as a worldview that has beliefs and values that try to interpret the world apart from there being a personal God. So the idea of evolution is that we came from sort of inanimate goo and it sort of accidentally morphed into something greater and evolved into, at some point, human beings through our, uh, our old descendants, the monkeys, and uh, it's, this is where we're at, and we are just simply sure accidents. Well, that's a particular worldview, and it, it's a way people interpret and understand and explain how the world works and how they interpret it based on their belief system. Obviously, when it comes to a Christian worldview, it doesn't start with us and work backwards. It starts with God and that we're human beings are created in the image of God and that he has his fingerprints uh, on everything that, is, that exists. In fact, the scriptures are pretty clear that nothing exists apart from the fact that God created it. And so that would be more of a Christian worldview. Uh, by the way, there are certain studies that have gone out from uh, the statisticians in our worlds that say that there is a huge number of, uh, I, I think they even tested church leaders that says, they, I think it was 36% even of leaders do not have an actual biblical worldview of the things that are going on around them. Now stats can say anything, and so the problem with saying that is you don't get to, we don't get to dive into all of that, but there, there's a concern that even Christians tend to have certain things that they look at the world through the scriptures, but they seem to have taken the freedom to look at a lot of different things in life just on their own accord. My own common sense, my own interests, my own preferences are going to dictate what's going on. When we come to this passage, we see a little bit of that going on, and we'll discuss it in a minute. But as we live in the world, we know that our American culture has a certain worldview. In fact, if you, we couldn't take the time to look at all the different worldviews that are clashing with one another. And that, those worldviews can be looked at from a political position, they can look at it from economics. Uh, you get the, 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 those who are interested in the earth and saving the earth and treating that almost as equal as human beings and you've got a whole movement that tries to deal with protecting our environment. And not everything is wrong. There's lots of things that are valuable in terms of if you piecemeal a lot of worldviews. 
And that's kind of what our world does. We have a worldview in our culture that wants to pick certain things that, are, that resonate with who I am. And one of the things about worldview in our world today is that the individual becomes the final authority about what truth is. And so everything is relative based on what I think truth is based on I get to make my own choices. So we, when we come to this idea of worldview, we run into a huge brush fire of different opinions about how this works. When Jesus steps into this situation, which he didn't necessarily create, it was an observation that some of the Pharisees and scribes were looking at, it it creates a teaching point for Jesus to talk to them in a sense what we would call worldview, but talks about the movement of God as he fulfills his promises and presents his son to a Uh, an Israel that desperately needs him. Now, you'll notice in the text that it talks about fasting. We don't think about fasting very much, but let me uh, suggest to you that the practice of fasting in the Old Testament had several nuances to it. First of all, it was a very common rite in Judaism. It was deep in the Old Testament. At times, it had expressions of mourning for loss or someone or something, so you will see in different parts of the scripture, if there's a death or the army lost something, people would go into fasting and they would put on, take their regular clothes off and put on sackcloth and it really showed this sense of deep agonizing pain as they fasted and stopped their normal activities and mourned over the loss of, of someone or something in their life. So that was certainly an aspect of it, but often it was also an expression of contrition and penitence, a sign of repentance and seeking God and submitting humbly to his presence and his will. So for instance, the story of Jonah. If you follow that story where Jonah goes and preaches to the city of Nineveh and he pronounces God's judgment upon it, the people of Nineveh go, man, we don't want that. So they're called a citywide fasting where they even made the animals not eat because they desperately had this conviction that God was going to destroy them and God relented of doing that. And so that fasting was kind of at the centerpiece of what that looks like. Now, in, in our culture, as I've already tried to hint at, it's, it's sometimes hard to find Christians who fast. Unless, of course, it has something to do with personal physical health. Uh, we're, we're really good on that piece. We seem to want to do cleansings, we want to do fastings, and there's been a huge shift in our culture that it's kind of the new fad, but it, most of it is for personal physical health reasons. Now that doesn't mean certain Christians don't fast and that's not part of their equation, but it's rare at times to find individuals who want to fast in the sense of seeking after God. Not only as something they do in emergencies or crisis, but certainly as a regular part of their discipline. There's individuals that you will find as Christians that will fast on a regular basis, not again for physical cleansing or health reasons, but for spiritual health reasons. So we've modified it in our culture a little bit. We will talk about creative ways to fast. So for instance, you'll hear people talking about we're gonna fast from our social media, which the idea is is we're gonna make some kind of attempt to set that aside because we know we're addicted to it and I need a break from it. Now we fast for a period of time and then we go back and suck it down again like it's spaghetti and you know, so I don't, I don't, I don't always know where that's going but Taking times of seeing how addicted we are to things isn't necessarily a bad thing. But we will fast, but the idea of fasting, at least in terms of you look in the scriptures, was really an attempt to get before God and seek him 
and really present ourselves. It wasn't like offering Old Testament sacrifices to please God. It literally comes back to the idea of I'm presenting myself before God in all of my vulnerability. I am exposed and I'm fragile. I'm before the living God and I'm all by myself there. And there's something that is super transparent and vulnerable about the reality of fasting. And we're not gonna go into all the details. But the purpose of fasting really was humility before God. You'll see it all through the scriptures, whether God pronounced judgment like he did with Nineveh and they humbled themselves, they wanted to fall upon God's mercy to relent of the judgment that was coming. Uh, And I, I love Uh, Robert Gerlich's statement, he says, combined with prayer, fasting was a statement of self-denial and self-humiliation depicting as one self-effacing and submission to God's will. Judaism had several different times of the year where they fasted. For instance, Day of Atonement and New Year and uh, certain national fasts for calamities. Um, But personal fasting was done often by the Pharisees and the scribes. They'd have a couple of times a week, I believe it was uh, I read one author who talked about them doing it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So if you've got true followers of Jesus, when the Christian movement came in, they didn't want to do it on the same day because they didn't want to be associated with the hypocrites, so they did it on like Wednesdays and Fridays. So there was uh, some debate to it. But like anything, the danger with a discipline, whether it's prayer or reading the scriptures or fasting, is it can easily become boring and we've become so familiar with it, it loses its value. And so today, I don't go around taking a poll of how many of you are fasting once in a while for the purpose of seeking God, but it's not necessarily as common as even reading the scriptures or other things. So, but it, it was certainly a significant part of this particular text, and you've got three different branches of people who are uh, caught up in this particular discussion. I want you to notice the people who are involved just so that we have a bit of a background. One is the disciples of the Pharisees. And I think if we were gonna put any positive spin upon what we tend to think is a group who are particularly hypocritical, the idea of fasting was often anticipation of the promises God made in the past. And I'll reference that in a minute by giving you a couple of examples. But fasting often was done in the, cost, in the context or in the cultus of Israel and in their behaviors as a way of anticipating that God made promises to us and we are either seeking God to bring about those promises or we're looking forward to when God fulfills those promises. And we will see that. It was, it was very much on future events. So for example, when God promised um, uh, Abraham that he was, going, he, he was gonna grow a great people from him, he said, first of all, I'm gonna send them to Egypt and they're gonna be there for 400 years. Then I'm gonna deliver them. Well, if you were born in Egypt during that time, you'd probably be in a phase of history where it's like, that's never gonna happen in my lifetime. What good is a promise if it's not gonna affect the way I'm, if it's not gonna give me the freedom that I want? So Israel, in fact, has a, a long history of fasting as part of a way of seeking God and submitting humbly to him in anticipation of the hope of the promises that God had made. And so often the Pharisees, that incumbent on the best scenario with them, that that's what they look forward to. And and so it was looking forward to what God would do. Uh, For instance, Hebrews chapter 11, you'll read descriptions of individuals. 
and we won't read all of it, but there's people that serve God by faith, but they were treated horribly, even by God's own people. Prophets and other individuals who spoke for God, but they were tortured and exiled, they were isolated, many of them were killed. And you'll notice the last statement of this section in Hebrews 11, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, it, it wasn't a, a personal promise where God says, well, I'm gonna deliver you, and the way he did it was through death, and, and that's the way they escaped it. Much of this is hinges on the promises God made to Abraham and to Jacob and to David on, on the big picture of God fulfilling his great promise to send a Messiah and to, and to free Israel from the oppression of their enemies, to establish this Davidic kingdom that he promised to David. And so it's not so much individual that God, I'm in a messy spot, would you do something, but it's in the big picture of the movement of God with his people to put them as the crown jewel on center stage on earth to be his representatives. And so there's a long, long history of individuals who live by those promises but never saw them fulfilled. Uh, but there was a time that when God broke the silence and he came to individuals like Elizabeth and Mary, that he, he inaugurated the fulfillment of these promises because he was bringing his son on the scene. And you'll notice there's three people in particular, Zachariah, Simeon, and Anna, that once John was born and when Jesus was born, these individuals had the spiritual insight to see the fulfillment at their doorstep. It was in the form of a child and an infant, but you'll notice some of the statements that is going on with Zachariah. You remember that he didn't believe God or the angel of the Lord when he made a promise that they would have a son, so he said, and I'm playing on words here a little bit, you're not gonna be able to speak. We're gonna give everyone else a fast from you, so you're not gonna talk for till this child's born. And then when the baby was born, and he wrote down what his name's gonna be, all of a sudden then he could speak. And the moment he was able to speak, the Spirit of God came upon him, make this great prophetic utterances to the glory of God about John, and it's fascinating to hear it. Let me read portions of it out of Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So even in this situation, the promise isn't just him having a baby because he and Elizabeth were barren. That was God caught them up in fulfilling the promise by involving them, but even he understands the bigger picture that's going on. And so God's movement, his, his story is the one that's being fold, unfolded here. Simeon did the same thing when Jesus, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple. He's just an infant, and so we have Simeon saying this, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the hope, the promise that God had made back to the forefathers. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so here are some random individuals who are being exposed to and see God's promise in the form of infants, whether it's John or whether it's Jesus, as God is unfolding this, but not everybody saw it. Not everybody was able to see this in terms of what's going on. And the other individual is Anna, 
the daughter of Phanuel, and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So Anne is a perfect example of an individual whose worship involved fasting and prayers because she anticipated God's fulfillment of promise. And so the whole idea of fasting has very much about it. This is, may have other purposes, but certainly in the sense of the Pharisees even, this was all part of looking forward to when God would fulfill his promise of Messiah. That as the disciples said in Acts chapter one, when Jesus was raised from the dead, you'll notice he goes, hey, are, is this the time you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're looking for this redemption. They're looking for God to fulfill the promises to David. They're looking for Messiah. They're looking for this hand of God to transform not only who they are, but to set them back as the crown jewel of his presence in the world. And so as you move through this, you not only have the Pharisees doing this, but you also have John's disciples fasting. Now, John, of course, was six months earlier than Jesus. He was a relative, and his ministry wasn't like, okay, we're 400 years in this. Someday God's gonna fulfill it, so we're gonna hang on and live by faith even though we know we're not gonna, be, we're not gonna see those promises. John was the forerunner of Jesus, and he, his had a certain urgency. Like, Jesus is here. Messiah is here, and his whole ministry was about preparing people to do it, and so uh, even though he ate locusts and those kinds of things, we're told here that his disciples were fasting, likely in prayer, and I suspect because of the nature of his ministry that the people of Israel would repent and that they would be ready for Messiah. So it, it's very much involved in John's ministry, whether it's directly his practice or those who followed him, but it was focused more on the immediacy of a person, not just future promises. Now, I say all that just for the nature of saying that when Jesus is presented with this question, you'd think he'd start like talking about fasting. But he doesn't talk about fasting, he talks about feasting. His statement is really interesting. He's, his response to them is intriguing in the sense that he says, well, hang on, these guys over here may fast, but my disciples aren't because these guys, if, they, if you think of the picture, the imagery of a wedding, when the bridegroom shows up, they don't all fast. This is a time to celebrate and feast. And what Jesus is in essence saying is that all the promises that, that you look forward to and you've been fasting and praying and worshiping God and looking for this consolation, you're looking for the promise, I'm it. And his disciples are like, this is Messiah. This is the one that God had promised. This is the one that God made a covenant with Abraham with. This is the one that's gonna fulfill the Davidic kingdom. This is it. Fast, are you kidding? We're celebrating. And, and so there's a certain, there's a whole different avenue and attitude with Jesus' disciples than the others because they're not seeing the reality of who Jesus is. They don't see it like Zachariah saw it. They don't see it like Anna see it. They don't see it like Simeon perceived by the work of the Spirit, that this infant is the one whom God had promised all along. You know, let me pause there for a moment because it's an amazing thing that in our culture, we even tend to struggle with this. Many of us have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our personal savior, 
But in terms of wanting to celebrate his presence in real life and communicate that to other people seems to be a big struggle. The, the, the idea that we know the God of the universe, and he's made promises to Abraham and David and Jacob, and as he pushes that forward and Jesus comes on the scene, we become the recipients of the promises that were made. And in many ways, we have to learn to celebrate that. I, I know that we live in a very broken world, and we talk a lot about our brokenness, usually to curb our arrogance to think that we can judge other people. But as one introvert to a lot of introverts, Sometimes we get as excited as a dead rock in the middle of winter. Like, and we, we always do this, like, I think for the whole time of my ministry, one of the great things of most worship teams is it's kind of like, no one seems excited. That, you know, they're singing it, you know, we're talking about the joy of the Lord, and there's some people like, look like they're falling asleep, others going, you know, sing about the joy of the Lord, and yeah, that's cool. Now we all have, you know, every time I bring this up, someone's kind of saying, well, it's what goes on in the inside. I uh, had a chance this week to hang out with my uh, son and my, uh, his wife and my granddaughter. Little baby kids, infants, have a way to turn adults into babbling stupid fools. <laughs> we're, we're, we're sitting there playing with her and, it, and we know that if we go, we've got her going like in five seconds flat and she's and we're and we're looking like stupid people because we're excited about this little tiny life that's engaged in living and most of us get way more excited about our grandkids which I think is appropriate to get excited about our grandkids but we get way more excited about earthly things than we do about eternal things and I think there's an element here that Jesus is saying, listen, when you know and see and touch the promise of, that God has made, you're not, you're not mourning and fasting, you're celebrating. And I, I don't know about you, but I think if there's one thing that I wish God could give the, us introverts an injection of is it's okay to show some enthusiasm once in a while. It's okay to know the joy of Christ and, and the overflow of, of enthusiasm and excitement. Because I walk up to someone and say, you know what, Jesus died for your sins. Do you get that? And they say, why? Like, you don't seem very excited about it. And I know we talk about we're broken. I know that we struggle, but boy, there's, there's an aspect of the life of Christ that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that ought to flow from our lives like a fountain of youth, that touches people's lives like a, a contagious joy pill. And sometimes the worst thing in the world are Christians who seem bored out of their mind because life is a drudgery and they can't seem to figure out how Christ is supposed to make a difference in the workplace. Whatever job you have, it shouldn't matter if you're doing it for Christ. You ought to do it with all the enthusiasm and joy and passion. People ought to look at us and even in the, in the grudgery of life and jobs and work to see people that seem uniquely and genuinely enthusiastic and celebrating the presence of Christ in their life. Part of our picture of a disciple 
out of Colossians comes this whole element of, of joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance with the saints in light. And sometimes we become so absorbed and so overwhelmed by the, the things of this life and what's not happening and the treachery of the chaos of my day and how exhausted we are in terms of doing things that the idea of joy and celebrating and feasting the presence of Christ is the very last thing on our mind. And I, if I can encourage you a little bit is that if you want to take some time to fast from the chaos of your life if no, and if no other reason to humble yourself before him and understand the absolute thrill and joy of what it means to know Christ. And so the nature of this is Jesus paints a whole different picture of hoping for something that's not there and may not come in my lifetime because we know there's lots of our people that have never seen the fulfillment of it. But Jesus is saying, I'm like, I'm right here. You don't need to fast. You need to celebrate like it's a wedding. And so Jesus says, listen, the groomsmen don't at the wedding aren't fasting. They're celebrating the, the groom and the bride and their love for one another and all that that means. And it's so easy to forget that God wants to have a love relationship with us. He certainly did with Israel. He treated them like they were gonna be this, the, the bride of God. And he was gonna nourish and cherish her and provide for her everything she needed to be glorious and splendid and magnificent, to be able to celebrate God's blessing in their life. And yet sometimes we look like we're pouting all the time and we're complaining because this isn't working and that isn't happening. And I'm not getting my way here and my spouse won't do this and my kids drive me nuts and my work bores me to death. And someone asks how it's weak and it's like, yeah, best we can do is, yeah, it's all right, I survived it. I don't know, I, I think there's something that Jesus wants to tell us. That knowing Jesus is the greatest privilege in the world. And it's worth being excited about. So, let me ask you this. What's your enthusiasm for Jesus this morning? I mean, are you excited about him at all? Do you see his fingerprints on your life in such a way that you want to brag to other people about how good God is? What an incredible, humble privilege it is to know Christ and to allow his spirit to change the dysfunction of my life so that I can live godly and holy life. And so Jesus mentions that there's going to be a time that his men are going to fast. I believe this is simply a reference to the fact that after being on earth and all that Christ did, then he's going to be crucified. Oh, that's exciting. That's my explanation, joyous explanation, Mark, on that particular point. Everyone pull out their phones and turn on the alarm so that we can be joyful. But, but they're going to fast at one point, and we see that when Jesus is crucified, and in conjunction with that when he's ascended, because all the disciples gather in the room, and they're terrified, and they're praying and fasting, and what do we do now? So there's going to be a time that that's going to happen, 
But at the same time, out of those, those times where they feel like everything has failed and everything is crushed and all their hopes are gone, it's out of that mess that God's going to triumph by sending his spirit. I know there's times I've had discussion with people and they say, man, I wish I was back in the time of the disciples. I could actually reach out and touch Jesus. Wouldn't that be so cool? And yet Jesus himself says, and the New Testament says, we have a much better relationship because Jesus was only there for a short time and then he was gone. We actually have him indwelling in us. The Spirit of God is active and alive and interacting with our heart and mind and our spirit. And he's constantly there trying to nurture us through our life and fill us with the fruit of his presence. And yet there's some Christians you'd never be able to figure that out by the way they act or in the way they talk. And so as they move through this, you discover that in this picture, then Jesus goes on and he starts talking about these weird things that go on that he, that he seems to be talking about. He talks about these garments. And it seems like a strange concept to us as we think about it. But he goes on in this passage, and let me come back to it a little bit. Jesus said to them, or I'm sorry, no one who sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away the new from the old and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, I'm not a connoisseur of those things. When Jesus went to the wedding, they had clay pots, so they just filled it up. There was no issue there. But he uses this imagery of taking, trying to fix a garment. Now, you'd probably have to talk to all the seamstress around here to figure all this stuff up, but you know, it doesn't seem to make sense to me just as much as I'm not a fall, summer type kind of clothing person. Um, you don't take old stuff and sew it to new garments unless you're looking for sort of the rag look or whatever. I mean, but it doesn't make sense because they're not compatible. And the same thing in terms of wine. If you take new wine and put it onto old skins, it'll, the, the fermentation process will just fracture it. It'll just rip it apart and there'll be nothing, everything will be lost and ruined. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, for the Jews and the Pharisees, they have a worldview that's so deeply rooted into the Old Testament that everything's about the law. And everything's about a future promise that they keep hoping for and fasting for and anticipating. But, you know, you only do that for so long before you sort of convince yourself that it may not happen. You know, one of the things we deal with right now is sort of the whole eschatology movement, the whole idea of Jesus' imminent return. Those discussions are crazy and wild. Everyone, everyone from, I think Jesus is coming back next week to he could come back any moment to... I hope he gets here tomorrow. Why? Because we're, we're, we look at a promise that we see from the scriptures, and depending on where you're at in your phase of life, the older we get, the more we kind of go, yeah, I just like want to get out of here. This place is a train wreck. And I hope he comes back. Some of us are going, well, if he comes back, then I don't get to sort of touch other people with the gospel. I don't want it to come right now. But it's a promise that we've talked about. I heard this in the 70s. I had pastors back in the 70s saying, you know, it could happen in this decade. And I'm not trying to make fun of the fact that we can't figure that out. The issue is, is that this is a promise that, that 
is, seems to be if written into the fabric of the text, and we keep looking for it, and the worse the world gets, the more we want it to happen. And yet, I haven't seen it in my lifetime, at least. I hope it hasn't happened, because then some of us might be in trouble. But that's one of those promises that either encourages you or discourages you, but it's one of those things that is circulating all over the place now because, boy, this world is really troubled. But what Jesus is talking about is that there's going to be a whole worldview change when he comes on the scene as the fulfillment of the promise. All the things that they hoped for are now bound up in the person of Christ, and that means things are going to change. You don't need to fast anymore. You, you, can, you can feast because I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years, and on, now he's on the scene, and the moment is now. And Zechariah knew it, and Simeon knew it, and Anna knew it, but there's so many people, especially the Pharisees and the scribes, who never saw it, and he was standing right in front of them. But Jesus is basically saying, there's an old system, and it was a good one, because God created this covenant with Israel, but it was just simply the seeds, the promises of what was to come. That wasn't intended to be there forever. It was simply to prepare God's people for the time that God would fulfill those promises. And things have to change if the fulfillment's going to come. And so in the Old Testament, it was Judaism. In the New, it was Jesus. In the Old Testament, it was the Old is the Old Covenant. Jesus is going to now establish a new covenant relationship. The Old Testament, and I'm making real generalizations here, it was the law, now it's going to be Christ. The old system was the sacrifice of animals, now it's going to be the sacrifice of Jesus. And I, Jesus is speaking into this because he's inaugurating these promises and they still don't quite get it. So Jesus uses this illustration to say, listen, one of the things you've got to realize is that as the fulfillment of this, it's now incompatible with the way you've looked at things from this point up to this point. So the Pharisees and the scribes, as much as they're religious experts and everything else, he's going, what, we're, what I'm bringing to the table isn't going to work with this system. So you have to change and adopt my way of looking at things if, if, this is gonna, if you're going to experience it. They don't mesh. You don't put old cloth and try to stitch it to an old garment. You don't put new wine in old wine because they're going to get destroyed. And so he's introducing them something that's going to radically change them. It doesn't mean that the other was bad, but it's now obsolete because now God's fulfilling the promise. Hebrews chapter 7. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. That's the person of Jesus. And it becomes useless, not because it was useless, but now Jesus is on the scene, so he's going to render it useless because he is the fulfillment of all that it looked forward to. I mean, what would you rather do? Look at dessert on pictures or actually eat it? I uh, go over to, I'm not trying to advertise a business so much, but I go over to Mort's once in a while, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but if you order carrot cake you get a nuclear jugular size carrot cake. I mean, it's ridiculously big. It takes you like a week to eat the thing. 
And I can look at it and I can look at the picture and I go, yeah, I've been there and I know what that looks like, but it's a whole different story to eat it. And Jesus is saying, listen, you talk about the promise, you look for hope, and you sort of get used to looking for something that you finally convince yourself isn't going to come, and then he's here and they don't know what to do with him. And isn't that so true of us? And so Jesus tells this parable, and I want you to notice one thing from Luke 5. He makes one statement at the very end of that section that's very similar to this, and he says, the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and then he says this, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good enough. Now Jesus is going to bring in a new covenant relationship that if they're going to be experiencing and part of it, they have to change. They have to let go of the way they've looked at the world so far and they need to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. If they don't, they're going to be left out of it. It's great to talk about the promises, it's great to have the theology, but if you don't experience the reality of it, at some point you're doomed. And at the heart of this, Jesus is really promoting the essence of the gospel of Jesus. And the Pharisees really struggled with them. And I want to try to help you understand this a little bit by giving you a couple of illustrations of what churches go through that I think adequately illustrated, even though it's not exactly the same. So if you'll permit me to do that, let me try to help you paint the picture. Let me start with the law. In the Old Testament, had the law. Now it's going to be Christ. So we go through things. One example that we often struggle with and we're not sure about, and it's not a big deal, but in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about tithing. You get to the New Testament, and we use that language a lot, but there's no, once you get past the Gospels, there's no language that talks about tithing at all. In fact, the language of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is let everyone, don't give under any kind of compulsion, but give willingly. Why? Because the motivation ought to come from my relationship with Christ, not an obligation of the law. And so I could make the argument, pretty, I think pretty persuasively, that the law made an obligation that they were required to do. It didn't matter whether they had faith or liked it or not. They were supposed to give a tenth. Gospels will talk about it because it's a transition piece, but the, the, second, the giving in terms of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is about give willingly, give generously, give out of a joyful, cheerful heart, not out of a legal obligation. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds of this, but I think there's a difference where even Galatians tells us the law and all the components of it were a tutor that brought us to Christ. But now that we have a relationship with Christ, the primary motivation ought to be my love for Jesus. And yet there's lots of Christians who don't know how to shift from law because that's black and white and it helps me figure it out. And that's okay if we need help figuring it out. But real giving comes out of this love for Jesus and a joyful, cheerful heart. Well, that one may or not resonate with you. Bible translations. You say, how do Bible translations? Well, you know, go, you go through the normal discussion about what's the best translation. And of course, it always ends up, unfortunately, being a discussion between King James and everybody else kind of thing. I remember the discussion we had in college where the, the uh, fun-loving, at least in college it was, fun-loving argument is that if the King James Version was good enough for Paul, why can't it be good enough for everyone else? <laughs> but see, what happens is that people get ideas about things like Bible translations, and 
I've had all kinds of courses in it, so I know all the arguments. I've heard all those kinds of things that are going on, and yeah, they just have more copies over here, but this is the more genuine because of this and that and different areas of the world where they're done, and yeah, I get all that. But the point is, we get so stuck in the weeds trying to argue about what version is, and I'm kind of like, well, we have all these translations because we're trusting the Greek text and the Hebrew text, if we actually believe that it's inerrant and infallible, then as we translate it, the the reason for Bible translation is because the language in our culture keeps changing and we wanna keep communicating clearly to people. My first pastorate, they said, well, we use the King James Version. I said, well, the problem is none of you talk that way other than Sunday morning when you pray. (laughs) You don't talk this way in real life. I know you don't. In fact, you use some language I never find in the Bible. So, but, but the day, I've seen churches get into massive fights about this kind of stuff. But the, but the reason for it is people get very locked into their beliefs and values over something like a certain Bible translation, and they get really comfortable with that, so when something new comes along, they feel like this is a step away from spirituality and authenticity, and they sometimes go to war about it. Well, if that one doesn't ring your bell, let me pick on worship. Worship's another one of those things where often we fall more in love with our personal preference for the style of worship than we do for the Jesus behind the worship. I mean, the scriptures are pretty clear, even in Colossians, is that you sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs. The issue isn't whether they're 30-year-old hymns or whether they're contemporary songs. Do they talk about Jesus? And yet I've seen churches go to war and they're still battling over the fact that that the idea is, well, why can't we go back here and do it? Well, it's like the wineskins. When we grow up, we grow up at a time where we have spiritual experiences and we sing songs as we're growing up, whether it's hymns or choruses or spiritual songs or whatever, and those imprint on us because I'm going through some real spiritual experiences that resonate with me. So when every time I sing that song, I get goosebumps because that reminds me of a spiritual experience that I have. But if I start weaponizing that and saying, well, if you're gonna sing that song and not that one, then you're not, that's, not, that's not as spiritual as this one, therefore, we need to go back and sing these. I mean, that's the whole wineskins thing. We, and the problem is, is that it's not like one person is right, one person's wrong, but the problem is, hey, I love to learn this body of music, and it means something to me, so the new stuff doesn't mean anything to me. This is good enough. But the problem is I've seen churches literally die because they won't make any changes to accommodate any new kinds of songs that the next generation wants to sing because these are the ones that are spiritual, those ones aren't. And it's a real thing. I deal with a lot of churches and this is some of the stuff that comes up. And I'm super thankful that this isn't, I mean I think I can freely talk about it because I really don't think that's, it's really a, a relevant issue here. I think our people have been very gracious because I think what we're learning is that, and I've said this lots of times, it's not the worship team's responsibility to make me worship by picking all the songs that I like. It's my responsibility sitting there that I use whatever they serve to worship Jesus, not the form of the song that they're doing. And yet we're in all these Christian cultural wars. Now, some songs are bad. You don't want to sing them. I don't care if a Christian wrote them or not. Some are just theologically and biblically 
stupid. <laughs> and we we're, we're always want to be discerning about what we sing. And you can't vet it very well sometimes because give me half an hour and I can pick any song you want to give to me and I'll find something wrong with it. <laughs> I will. I, I have no problem doing that. Now that doesn't mean we have to be discerning, but we get into tr- these things where the, we get comfortable with something and we say it's good enough. And the next generation comes along and goes, well, those are cool, but that's not my music and whatever. I don't care what style of music, I think a spiritually mature person knows how to worship Jesus regardless of what the worship is or the music is. That's, that's how we experience this worldview that we think is often so exclusive and I've got an inside corner on this and I'm the one that knows what's really right. And this goes on in churches all the time. But the thing that you need to know this morning, especially in your journey if you've never come to the reality of Christ, is that whether you're religious or not, whatever your view of the world is, whether you're an evolutionist, whether you're a moralist, whether you're maybe a socialist or whatever it happens to be, Jesus will come to every single one of us and he says, Whatever your worldview is, the way you interpret the world, it's not the way I interpret the world. And so Jesus is going to come, and it doesn't matter whether it's the Jews, or whether it's the tax collectors, or whether it's the sinners, or whether it's Americans, whether you like church, hate church, love Jesus, don't like Jesus. The reality is, is Jesus comes to every person and he says, listen, if you want to be right with me, here's the truth and the worldview you need to embrace. And that is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And the problem with that, especially in America, is truth is relative. I'm the final authority. I can believe whatever I want. I don't even care if it contradicts other things that I say I believe. I have the freedom to even contradict myself, and that's okay because... I just choose to change my beliefs anytime I want when it's convenient. And we want to be sensitive to what we do, but my worldview doesn't matter. The only worldview that matters is what the Bible talks about. The only worldview that matters is Jesus because he's the only one who can claim I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This funeral that I did yesterday, um, this gal happened to spend much of her life in a Catholic church, so unbeknownst to us, the priest from the church that she attended came to the service. The family came over to me and went, the priest is there, we didn't know he was coming. And so they had an open share time and he stood up and talked about this gal Josephine and talked very much about her character and how fun-loving she was. But because I have a sense that it's possible that my worldview is a little different than his, when the family, family told me that she had personally accepted Christ about four years ago, that's what I camped on. And I couldn't help but think, I wonder what he's thinking when I'm talking about this lady trusting Jesus personally only four years ago when she's been in church much of her life. I'm not sure it matters what churches believe or what their theology is or whether you belong to a church or don't belong to a church. What I think Jesus was trying to get them to deal with is you have, you have to deal with me. Because I don't care what your worldview is, the only one that really matters ultimately is what I think. And the heart of the gospel 
is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't earn our way to God. We'll never be basically good enough to convince him that we should be accepted by God. We'll never get to be part of his family by doing enough good things. I've told you before, and I'll keep telling you again, being a member of our church doesn't make you a Christian any more than me standing in a garage makes me a mechanic. Unless you willingly and personally put faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you will never be justified for God, you'll never be removed from his wrath, you'll never get the righteousness of Christ, you'll never be a child of Jesus if you don't trust Jesus. I don't know where you're at this morning, but Jesus steps into this situation where fasting was pretty important to people, and it wasn't even bad, it just looked for something that was already in front of them. And I wanna suggest to you that since Jesus has died and raised, the issue isn't really what I say, it's how you deal with Jesus. If you've never trusted Christ, I encourage you to consider that he loved you so much that he sacrificed his own love and, and, and his own life that if you believe in him, you won't perish but have everlasting life. But I can guarantee you that's gonna be a struggle because your old wineskin of how you view the world is not compatible with the new wine that Jesus wants to pour into your life. And so I'm gonna ask you, where are you at this morning? Does this new wine of his presence in your life cause you to live a life of feasting and celebrating Jesus and allowing the Spirit of God to allow you to joyously give thanks? Could there anything, as I learned again this week, there's nothing more contagious than hearing a nine-year-old squeal and laugh because you throw a towel over their head and they start playing peekaboo with you by yanking it off their head and just laughing their heart out. Some of us have lost the joy and the fullness of Jesus. And I might, for practical purpose, say, it might not hurt to spend some time fasting, seeking God, that he might restore the joy of Jesus in some of our disgruntled and frustrated and embittered hearts that need a deep cleansing, not by not eating for the next three days, but getting before his throne of grace and finding his grace and mercy to help us in time of need. Father, we realize that when Jesus steps into the world and into our life, he's giving us something brand new. For the Jews, it was excruciatingly painful because they had lived with a particular view of life that, in fact, you had given to them for hundreds and hundreds of years. And while it looked forward to the promise that you were to fulfill it, when Jesus was standing right there, they struggled with knowing what to do with you. And sometimes, even as we hear and read your word, we sometimes struggle with knowing what to do with you. 
Because if there's anybody that rubs on our old worldview, it's going to be Jesus. Help us to see him for who he is. Help us to know that you give us hope and forgiveness and the promise of eternity and the fullness of life if we learn to surrender and humbly walk with our God. Transform our hearts. Help us to seek you and to know the fulfillment of your promise in Jesus, not just for a moment, but for the rest of our lives. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.